thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with Diana O'Carroll. Hi, Diana. Hello. And also with me, Chris Smith. Now, this week, scientists have shed some light on why migraines cause photophobia, in other words, a dislike of bright lights. And incredibly, some blind people are also affected, and we'll find out why shortly. Also, how cleaner fish punish their feeding fellows if they cheat and eat something that they shouldn't. Sounds like my household. And also, how researchers have found a way to repair a defective enzyme that normally protects people from heart attacks, but it also helps them to break down alcohol. So Friday nights for them are very, very cheap at the moment, could become more expensive. That's all on the way. Diana. And also this week, we're looking at the science of sound and specifically how we respond to it. We'll hear how genes are linked to the development of the hair cells in the ear that turn sound waves into brain waves, how brains of deaf people decode sign language, how our ears fool us into hearing things that aren't there, and how clever computer systems can now help to make sure that station announcements that used to sound like this... Can end up sounding like this. Pure systems with base 5 and 6 are said to be very rare, but base 20 occurs in English when we use score, as in 4 score and 7. Sounds good to me. Well, that's all on the way. If you have any questions or comments for us, then do get in touch. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can, of course, Twitter at us. It's at Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. And now it's time for the News Flash with the Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and me, Diana O'Carroll. So, Chris, what have you got for us? Well, this week, scientists have discovered why light makes migraines become a lot worse. And actually, the key to this breakthrough was the discovery that people who are blind also get their headache aggravated by exposure to bright lights. This is the work of Rodrigo Nasida and his colleagues. They're based at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Centre in the US. And they began by asking 20 blind people who experienced migraines whether they got more light sensitive or they didn't have a problem with light when they actually had their headaches. And surprisingly, some of these blind people did report getting a worsening of their headache when they were having a migraine and exposed to bright lights. And the interesting thing was, when they looked at who those people were, they found that they were individuals with a form of blindness, which is like retinitis pigmentosa. So in other words, acquired forms of blindness, where the rods and cones that turn light into brain waves that the brain can understand, they degenerate, but the retina is otherwise left intact. Now, people, on the other hand, who had damage to their eyes, such as uh, traumatic damage, or the eyes were being removed, or they had congenital 
absence of the eyes, they didn't have this aggravation of headaches by bright light. So this suggested to the researchers there must be some kind of signal which is going from the retina and into the brain to make this happen. So how they got to the bottom of this was they went into the lab, took some experimental rats, and they put some chemicals, which were labels, which were dyes, into the retina to see where the nerve cells from the retina went to in the brain. And they found some connections from the retina to a part of the brain called the posterior thalamus. And the nerve cells that were making those connections are intriguing because they don't carry visual information. They carry information about whether it's light or dark. They're the brain's way of telling if it's daytime or nighttime, and it uses those cells to set the body clock normally. And so what's the impact of these projections going onto this bit of the thalamus? Well, that same cluster of cells in the posterior thalamus also they receive inputs from the meninges, the layers that surround the brain, and specifically pain fibres that supply the meninges. And so the same cells get both stimulated by whether it's light or dark and also pain signals. So if you've got already pain coming in being reported from this meninges and you also get the light signals coming in, this makes these things worse. And the researchers are saying this now sets the stage for understanding. Now we know a bit more about how the process is is wound up or why you get photosensitive, perhaps being able to treat it. So the best thing is definitely go to bed and close the curtains. Yeah, it's it's absolutely (laughs) true. But it's amazing to think that people who couldn't actually physically see hold the key to the breakthrough. Interesting. Well, um, also on a pain-related note, have you ever caught someone just before they say something embarrassing and did you give them a playful elbow? Well, it turns out that cleaner fish do something quite similar. A cleaner fish are the little hangers-on you see on big fish and their name is self-explanatory. They clean the larger fish of parasites and dead skin cells. This dirt is the cleaner fish's food and it keeps the host fish happy or at least prevents them from eating their followers. Now, Nicola Rahani and her team have found that male cleaner fish will punish the female cleaners if they step over the line and start munching on the tastier host fish instead. Because the host fish has a much more nutrient-rich mucus on their skin, and cleaner fish would much rather eat that, it actually risks offending the host fish if they do, and that might mean that the cleaner fish lose their food supply altogether. In the journal Science this week, they tested this by offering the cleaner fish some fish flake and they offered them also some more extravagant prawns. And they trained the cleaner fish so that if one took a bite from the prawns, all the food would be removed from the tank. And very quickly, the researchers saw that whenever a female cleaner took a bite from the prawns, the males would punish her by chasing her away. (laughs) Very nice. And afterwards, the females were much uh, much less likely to uh, give in to their prawny temptation again. Now, I'm not sure what it says about male-female relationships. I know I get a telling off if I reach for the chocolate, but perhaps I'm offending the god of female good figures or something. Um, But Rohani said that the males are actually less uh, well-behaved than the females a lot of the time, but perhaps part of the reason the males are so likely to cheat is that the females never punish the males. I don't know uh, why there's that sexual difference. But it might tell us something about the evolution of human behaviour and how we came to monitor each other's behaviour for an overall benefit to the society. And Rahani suggests that as the male fish are essentially looking after their own stomachs first, this is how behaviour which benefits the group as a whole might have evolved. Definitely a case of do what I say, not what I do, isn't it? Yeah, I uh, think so. <laughs> don't, don't follow my example, just do what I say. 
Well, also this week, scientists have uh, discovered there's a way to, excuse me, <clears throat> repair the activity of a defective enzyme. And this is an enzyme uh, which prevents some people breaking down alcohol. Um, it's also, though, an enzyme which can protect the heart against damage done by heart attack. And it can also place people who don't have enough of it at risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. Now, up to a billion people around the world, and that includes 40% of people who live in East Asia, have a form of a gene which codes for an enzyme called aldehyde dehydrogenase 2. The short name for that is ALDH2. And this is an enzyme that breaks down a chemical called acetaldehyde. And this is one of the metabolites that's produced when alcohol goes into the liver. And shortly after consuming some alcohol, people who have a defective form of this enzyme develop a very characteristic stereotype syndrome. They get very flushed in the face, they get a very fast heart rate, and they also feel very, very sick. And this is because in the bloodstream they build up large amounts of this acetaldehyde that they can't break down very fast. And the other interesting thing is that people who carry this abnormal form of the gene also have a higher risk, perhaps 100%, 200 risk of esophageal cancer. They're also at risk of Alzheimer's disease. And if they have a heart attack, the outcome usually is much worse. They get much more damage to the heart muscle. The, the damage is more extensive. What researchers have found previously is that higher levels of this particular enzyme, ALDH2, in heart muscle is very strongly protective against the damage done by a heart attack. In order to work that out, what they found was they developed a molecule called ALDA1, which can increase the activity of the enzyme in the heart, and that's how they made that link. But now there's a paper published this week in the journal Nature, Structural and Molecular Biology by scientists at uh, Indiana University in Stanford. This is a group led by Thomas Hurley. And they've actually worked out how this ALDA1 compound makes this enzyme become much more active. What they did was to solve the three-dimensional structure of the enzyme so they can work out what its shape is. And they found that at the core of the enzyme is a structure a bit like a tunnel. And that's where the acetaldehyde that needs to be broken down goes. But in the defective form of the the enzyme that the East Asian people have, this tunnel is the wrong shape and the molecule can't get in. But when you add this ALDA1 drug molecule to it, what it does is stick somewhere else on the outside of the enzyme and bend it or change the shape. And this twists the tunnel open again so that the enzyme activity goes back up. And right, one, one approach of this could be to mean that people who are holders of this particular genetic makeup could begin to drink more alcohol if they took a drug like this. But the point is that because it has such a potent effect on the heart as well, it has the ability to reduce the damage from heart attacks, it can reduce the risk of things like Alzheimer's disease, understanding how this pathway works and how to strengthen its effects could be really important in protecting general people who have the normal form of the, form of the enzyme too from those two very common conditions. Well, during these cold winter months, you might like to strap yourself in to some lovely fluffy socks, perhaps that your granny made you at Christmas. And now you can get special socks for donor organs and people with diabetes, according to a paper from Chemistry of Materials this week. It's not quite putting livers in jumpers and hepatic veins in booties, but chemists this week have described how they've created a special fabric that can deliver nitric oxide to donor organs. Well, why is this useful? Nitric oxide is great in preventing damage to organs which aren't getting enough oxygen. It's actually a molecule which many animal cells use to communicate with other cells. And one of the tasks nitric oxide performs is as a muscle relaxant, which means it can dilate blood vessels and increase blood flow. Actually, it's one of the signalling pathways that Viagra capitalises on. So this fabric contains zeolites, which are molecular cages of aluminium and silicon oxides. 
And these cages will soak up gas molecules like nitric oxide and then release them in a controlled manner. And the way they make the bandage fabric is to construct a water-repellent polymer and then they embed some of these zeolites in it. And they can control how fast nitric oxide is released by making the polymer more or less water-repellent. So to get the nitric oxide flowing, you just need to add moisture. And the scientists working on this, Kenneth Balkus and Harvey Liu at the University of Texas, are solving a problem here that many have struggled with before in medicine. It's quite tricky to find reliable ways of storing and then delivering nitric oxide in a controlled manner, because, as with many good things, too much is toxic. So apart from wrapping donated organs ready for transplantation, the zeolite fabric could be used for people with diabetes, in whom it's been found that nitric oxide production is compromised, and wearing this fabric as socks might increase blood flow in all sorts of extremities, so they could really benefit from some NO socks. Thank you, Diana. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and me, Diana O'Carroll. This week, we're talking about the science of hearing. Later on in the show, Ben and Dave will be finding out how to swap your ears and Mira finds out how to fool your brain into hearing things that aren't there. If you want to get in touch with us here on the show, it's at Naked Scientists is our Twitter name or you can send us an email, chris at thenakedscientists.com. But first, we're joined by Dr Karen Steele, who works at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute and is looking at what can happen in our, ge- in our genes, even, which would make us deaf. Hello, Karen. Hello. Right, so um, let's start off with, are there many genetic causes of deafness? Yes, there are. Uh, our genome is, is uh, a very common cause of hearing impairment in, uh, in the human population. There are many, many different genes, um, any one of which can be affected, causing deafness. And there are lots of different ways that genes can cause deafness. Sometimes a person can have just a single gene that has a, a, a defect, a mutation, causing deafness. In other cases, they could have a combination of a number of different variants of different genes that add together to give them a hearing impairment, including progressive hearing loss during their life. Um, or you can have genes that make you more sensitive to um, environmental damage, like noise-induced damage. Some people seem to be especially sensitive to noise-induced damage. So genes can play a, a very important role in causing deafness and are probably involved in more than half of the cases of hearing impairment in the human population. And how do you go about separating environmental causes of deafness from genetic? Well, that's very difficult in the human population unless you have a, a large family with many generations where you can actually track the inheritance of a single gene causing deafness through the generations. And most human families aren't like that. Um, and for that reason, we, we usually turn to an animal model. In, and in this case, we, uh, we use the mouse as a model because the mouse inner ear is almost identical to the human inner ear. It's just a little bit smaller. Um, and so we use the mouse as a model. And the mouse also has many different forms of deafness, um, including many of the same genes involved as in human deafness. So are mice genes linked to... How many actually are linked uh, to deafness, which are the same in mice as are in humans? Oh, there are dozens and dozens. I mean, we, we know in the human population um, uh, that there are um, over 130 different genes that can cause just simple deafness without any other signs of any other problem elsewhere in the body. Um, but there are probably over 400 genes that include deafness as part of a whole set of different problems that a person might have. Um, and there's similar numbers of genes in the mouse that can cause uh, hearing impairment, sometimes associated with other problems, like visual problems, for example. 
So I've got flagged up here that myosin 7A is a very important one that you look at. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Right. Myosin 7A is, it was an important gene. It was the first gene that was identified uh, to be associated with deafness. And uh, myself and colleagues um, in, uh, in London at the time um, identified it, first of all, in, in the mouse. The, the great advantage of using the mouse in this case is that uh, uh, you need uh, lots of offspring in order to study the inheritance of, of the gene, of the mutant gene. Um, and in the mouse, you can produce hundreds of offspring and therefore locate on a particular chromosome very, very carefully exactly where the mutant gene is um, and find it much more easily. So in that case, we could cut down the 3,000 million bases in the human genome down to about 2 million bases. Now, 2 million bases, or 2 million subunits of DNA is still an awful lot to search through for a mutation, especially if it's just one of those bases that's different in the mutant allele. Um, but it's still better than 3,000 million bases, so um, it, it's, it's very helpful. You can only really do that sort of work in the mouse. And so we spent a number of years um, trying to find exactly where this gene was in, in a mouse mutant that had a hearing impairment. Um, and uh, eventually we found it and it was a mutation in the myosin 7A gene. And how did, how did the myosin 7A gene actually affect um, the mechanical aspect of hearing? The so myosin 7A um, is a motor molecule. It's called a motor molecule. It's like the myosins in muscle. And, and there are lots of different myosin molecules. And uh, they're, they're all thought to be motor molecules. And they walk along little tram lines in cells called actin fibrils. So there are lots of actin fibrils, like little train lines going all around the cell. And the myosins are thought to be like the trains just carrying cargo from A to B within the cell. Um, but in the case of the sensory hair cells, which is where myosin 7A is, is expressed, um, the sensory hair cells are the cells that change the mechanical energy, the vibration of sound, into a nervous impulse uh, that leads to the brain. Um, in, in these hair cells, um, the, the myosin 7A is located um, just underneath the cell membrane uh, on little projections called hairs. That's why hair cells are called hair, uh, hair cells. They're, they're like hairs or little fingers sticking out of the top of the hair cell. And the myosin 7A is located just underneath the the membrane. These hairs are really critical for normal hearing because when the vibration bends that bundle of hair cell, hairs back, then tiny links in between these hairs are pulled and they pull open a channel which leads ions to flood into the cell, causing a voltage change, and that triggers the synaptic activity and a nervous impulse at the other end of the cell. Um, the, the hair cell in a normal person... Um, detects tiny, tiny movements, um, a, a less than a nanometre. So that's a really, really tiny, that's a, a, a millionth of a millimetre, if you can imagine such a tiny movement. And so in order to pick up such a tiny movement, this channel that is opened by these links, tugging of these links, has to be held very, very firmly in place. And um, our experiments in the mouse mutants have shown that we think that the myosin 7A, instead of acting as a, as a train carrying cargo around the cell, instead of that, it's actually acting as an anchor. So there are lots of actin fibrils inside these, these finger-like processes, um, and the motor end of the myosin 7A 
binds to that, and the other end, instead of holding onto a cargo, holds onto the cell membrane and keeps it very, very firmly in place so that the whole structure is ready to receive tiny, tiny movements. And if that molecule's not there, then the membrane just is very floppy, and so you, it's very, very much more difficult to open that channel by tugging at it because you just pull at the membrane rather than just pulling at the channel itself. I see, and is it only uh, mycin 7A that does that? Are there any other... Oh, there probably are other molecules. We know that there are lots and lots of other molecules involved in normal hearing processes, but we really have great difficulty in finding these, and and genetics is a a way, it's a tool for finding those those genes and those molecules and finding out more about the molecular basis of normal hearing Mm -hmm. function. Um, And and the key key thing about mouse and 7A, if I could also say this, is that... uh, we found it first in the mouse and then we got in contact with our colleagues who work on human deafness and they very, very quickly, having, having a candidate gene, were able to find that those, there were mutations in, in human families with Usher syndrome. And Usher syndrome is a tragic disease where children are born deaf. They have a balance problem, which means they develop their motor function late. They learn to walk late in life. Um, and then by the time they're about 10, they start to lose their uh, vision as well through retinitis pigmentosa or degeneration of the retina. So it's a very sad disease for children to have. It's very sad for the whole family. Um, and we were able to find those mutations and find the cause for a, a large number, large proportion of the cases of Usher syndrome in the human population. And that was very, very useful for the families involved who really wanted to know what the problem was. So now that we have these genes, what does that mean next for deaf people? Does it mean we might find a solution to deafness in the end? Is that even possible? That's a very interesting question. Um, There are lots of genes, hundreds of genes involved in deafness, and we only know a few of them so far, so we do need to understand what they're doing. Uh, And we need to understand how they're involved in deafness in the population as well. Um, And I think when we get to that point where we have a better understanding, then we'll be able to think about therapeutic interventions. And particularly, that's going to be important for people with progressive hearing loss, age-related hearing impairment, it's called. And um, for those people, if we can intervene and stop their hearing getting any worse, that will be a great benefit to a lot of people. So I, th- I, th- I think that that's the way forward. But we do need to find the rest of the genes, find out which ones are involved in the human population and understand what it is they're doing in the ear before we can think of ways of replacing their, their action if they're not acting properly. Thanks, Karen. That's Professor Karen Steele from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute explaining how some genetic factors can influence the way sensory hairs in our ears develop, leading to deafness. Thanks, Diana. Now, in the past, buildings weren't necessarily designed with the acoustics in mind, which means if you take old structures like railway stations or concert halls and then you put in a fancy new electronic PA system, the results can be quite poor quality sound at best or maybe even unintelligible echoes at worst. And that's largely because you don't know beforehand how to compensate for the intricacies of the architecture and then the presence of people and the furniture. But what about if you could use a computer system to simulate what you would hear if you were sitting in any part of the building listening to the sound system that you're planning to put in? My name is Jens Holger Rendel, and I'm working at a small company, Odeon AS, in Denmark, where we develop room acoustic software. The software simulates the sound in a space and uh, it can be used for concert halls, uh, opera theatres, uh, open plan offices, industrial halls, and well, a lot of places where acoustics is important. So is the basic premise then that if someone's going to build a building or put in some infrastructure, 
without having to put in the infrastructure, they can use your program to work out what it will sound like in that structure. So let's take an example of if I'm building a concert hall and I want to work out where to put my speaker system, I can work out how best to, to arrange the speakers so that everyone sitting anywhere in the concert gets the best reproduction of the sound. Yes, and these results can be calculated covering all possible positions of the audience so you can easily see from the results how even the acoustics is as a whole and if there are any bad spots that should be examined further. Is the programme basically using a model of the structure? So do you have to feed in a sort of rendition of the arrangement of the building, where the walls are, where the seats are, so that the programme basically sees a virtual construction of the area that you're studying and it uses that to work out how the sound would be experienced within that structure? Yes, that's correct. The first step in the modelling is to make a virtual model of the space. The most efficient way it can be to simply have the architect's 3D model, then it may be transferred and imported to the Odeon acoustic software. Then assign the sound absorption uh, from the surfaces and the scattering of sound, which has something to do with the roughness of the structures. And then it's ready to do the acoustic simulation. Have there been any situations where people are taking your Odeon software and using it to inform either the ground-up creation of a building space or putting in sound systems in existing building spaces? Well, one example could be a recent use in the Copenhagen railway station. It has recently got a new loudspeaker system and Odeon was used to predict the speech intelligibility that could be obtained with this new system. In other words, to combat the age-old problem of you can't hear that train wherever you're going is departing from platform three five minutes ago because you missed it. Yes, exactly. So how would you go about solving a problem like that then? In this case, the problem could not be solved by bringing down reverberation uh, in the hall because it has a very large volume. So it was solved instead by introducing uh, line array speakers, which are very tall columns of speakers, and this is exactly what we can model in the Odeon software. This allows to calculate how good the sound system is going to work, and it's possible then to choose positions as a listener and uh, try to listen to some sound samples, and that's what I have um, prepared for this. The first one represents that you are standing in the, the middle of this very big central station. There's a lot of people uh, around, as background noise, and then just two meters in front of you is standing a lady talking to you directly. Pure systems with base 5 and 6 are said to be very rare, but base 20 occurs in English when we use score, as in 4, score and 7. So she's clearly a mathematician as much as anything else, but um, what is that revealing? Well, you are able to understand her but it's very obvious that uh, this happens in a very big place and a very reverberant place. And so what would be the consequence of putting in a whole bank of speakers into that space? I mean, you just end up with echoes you couldn't understand, presumably. Yes. I then uh, modelled the new speaker system, but before we, we listen to the whole system, I should like to give, as a second example, that we just uh, turn on one of the speakers to give an idea of uh, how the sound would be if you have a sound system which is not uh, well planned. Pure systems with both 5 and 6 are said to be very rare, 
So that's the experience we've all had at the railway station, isn't it? We just can't hear what the message yes. is. Right, right, so what uh, can we do about this? We can uh, then design a, a proper loudspeaker system and with a sufficient number of speakers, in this case it was 20, it's much better than what you normally would experience in such a place. Pure systems with base 5 and 6 are said to be very rare, but base 20 occurs in English when we use score, as in 4 score and 7. So you must agree, that does sound a whole lot clearer. The whole thing was actually done using a computer simulation of the station and then using that simulation to work out where to put the speakers to achieve the maximum intelligibility for the people using the station. I was talking there to Jens Holger Rindel, who wrote the Odeon software that actually does that modelling. Now, another person using this system is hearing researcher Jörg Buchholz at the Technical University of Denmark. He uses Odeon to recreate standardised noisy environments in his laboratory to try to get to the bottom of what's called the cocktail party effect. This is the fact that, even despite huge amounts of background noise, we can usually follow a conversation quite easily. But people with hearing impairments actually find this really very difficult. But until we can find out why they find it so difficult it's really hard to make hearing aids that can compensate. Normal hearing people usually have no problem in communicating in cafeterias or other noisy places, but hearing impaired often do have severe problems in such situations, and hearing aids often do not really help, and that's exactly what we're interested in. Why are normal hearing people so good in doing that? Why do hearing impaired people have these problems, and why or how can hearing aids help in these situations? So how are you trying to address that problem? How can you solve it or investigate further what's going on? First, we have to understand what goes wrong. Um, There are different aspects in it. But for us, we are interested in real-life stimuli, which is usually quite complicated to look at because we can't follow a person around the city all the time. So what we do is try to get the city situation or cafeteria situation into the laboratory And then we can measure speech intelligibility in such environments or aspects like distance perception and so on. We can measure in our laboratory space and this would be as close to the real life as possible. I see. So you're you're bringing the cafeteria or the noisy station or whatever to the lab by creating it artificially, but you can put the hearing impaired subject in that environment and see how they react and respond to that environment, what they can hear in that environment, and then you can tweak that environment in very standard ways to work out what is going on. That's exactly what we're doing. So we have lots of loudspeakers in a room. We create signals using Odeon, and we set a person in the center of this uh, loudspeaker array and even put some, as we call it, a master hearing aid on. So this is a computer platform which we can fully control. So we have the entire system we can basically control, the, the acoustic environment, the sound sources in there, but also the signal processing in the hearing aid that the subject is listening through in that environment. And presumably what that will enable you to do is to then work out what aspects of the acoustic environment are bad for a standard hearing aid or bad for a hearing impaired person and work out how to adjust the hearing aid's function to compensate so the person hears better. That's exactly what we do. For example, early reflections in a room are very, very dominant. And in many cases, people consider this as disturbing. But actually for speech, it helps. And hearing aids often destroy these early reflections, which might not be the most good thing to do. Is that a discovery you've only just made? So that hasn't actually filtered down into the hearing aid 
market yet effectively? Is that something that has yet to break in and, and be implemented? Hearing aid companies try these things, but I think it is now the time when we have this transition where we basically try to go from the simple laboratory into a more realistic environment because there's a difference in how hearing impaired people with hearing aids perform in laboratory. So how we fit, like the audiologists fit hearing aids and how they then are used in the real life. And this gap has to be bridged somehow. And that's what now we do. So we have the environments, the loudspeaker-based environments, the simulation software and so on, so that we now can do these things. And hearing aid industry is picking up on that right now. And with Jörg Buchholz, who is creating or recreating even the noisy cafe environment in his laboratory to try to understand how to build better hearing aids. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and Diana O'Carroll. If you would like to contact us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, or you can send an email the old-fashioned way to chris at thenakedscientist.com. This week we're talking all about the science of hearing and sound. But hearing isn't just down to your ears. The brain plays a crucial role. And in just a second, we'll be joining Mira to find out how the brain can actually hear sounds that aren't actually there. Auditory illusions, in other words. But now we're joined by Dr Mairead McSweeney, who's from the Institute of Cognitive Science at University College London. That's where she works on looking at how a deaf person's brain deals with language, whether that's sign language or lip reading or reading from text. And she's with us now. Hello, Mairead. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about the, the deaf person's brain. How does it differ or not from someone who is normally hearing? Well, to date, only a few studies have actually been done to look at the structure of deaf people's brains. And perhaps surprisingly, um, these studies suggest very few, if any, anatomical differences between deaf and hearing brains. So, for example, we might wonder what happens to the part of the brain that processes sound in you and I, auditory cortex. Uh, and we might predict that this may be atrophied in people who were born deaf. But that doesn't seem to be the case. So in people born deaf, the, the size of auditory cortex seems to be the same as in hearing people. Uh, what it's actually doing is a different question. I can perhaps tell you more about that if you're interested later. And then, indeed, when we think about function and how the brain processes language, which is, as you said, the focus of my work, then again, very similar neural systems seem to be recruited by deaf and hearing people. So in hearing people processing spoken language and deaf people processing, in our case, British Sign Language, which is a real language and is fully independent of spoken English, then the same neural systems seem to be recruited, and these are predominantly located in the left hemisphere of the brain. So the same bits of the brain that would be encoding uh, the decoding of, of language if you were listening to it are being used to decode language arising through other means of communication? That's exactly right, yes. Yeah. So we are comparing two we were comparing languages coming in in very different modalities. So we've got auditory verbal speech, and then we've got um, visual spatial sign language, and the same systems seem to be recruited. And, of course, if we think about... We, we as hearing people also deal with visual language. So you mentioned lip reading, so we, we, we see people's faces when we speak, or we might uh, be reading text. But these are all based on spoken language, and we have that auditory auditory system that is involved in processing spoken languages and sorry language and these visual derivatives of it are then based are built upon that system 
Whereas with sign language, of course, we're looking at something that doesn't have any auditory component. So the fact that the same systems are used for visual, for spoken language and sign language is, is, is very interesting and tells us that there's, there's something important. What the brain is doing is saying there's something important about language that's recruiting these regions in the left hemisphere. I was just going to say, how does the brain know this is language and I have to present this information to this other bit of the brain whose job it is to decode language and then parcel it out to the other bits of the brain that then do other aspects of linguistic processing, working out what the verbs mean, what the nouns mean, what colours mean and so on? Well, that's the big question that we're, that we're working on, really. So it's one thing for us to say that, the, that this system in the left hemisphere in, involving certain parts of the brain that have been identified for a long time, Broca's area and Wernicke's area is being involved in, in language processing, that it's one thing for us to say that these are also involved in sign language, but it's that the next step for our research is really, well, what is it about language and, and the structure of language that, that, sends, that, that is important for these regions? What is it that, that is, is critical and what is it that these regions can do in terms of symbolic processing or whatever it might be that is important for language processing? So that's the next step, if you like, for our research. And you're doing this with brain scanning. So you put people with a hearing impairment of presumably different lengths of time, people who've been born deaf versus people who have acquired forms of deafness, who have uh, learned alternative means of communication, and you look at how their brains respond to different stimuli. Um, yeah, we're using brain scanning, as you say. So we use something called functional magnetic resonance imaging, um, where we can get an indirect, indirect measure of blood flow, which tells us which parts of the brain are being used when we show different people stimuli, as you say, whether it's sign language or visual speech or written text. Um, actually, we don't do what you say. We, we haven't yet done what you said, which is comparing people who are born deaf with people who become deaf later in life. Most of our work is concerned just with people who are born profoundly deaf. Um, but looking at all of these different groups can address very important questions. So looking at people who have become deaf later in life will be something we'll do in the future because it, it all tells us about how it, our critical question, which is how experience shapes the brain and how plastic the brain is in responding to changes as in, in its environment. And if you look at people in whom the opposite side of the brain is the dominant one, because in the majority of us we're right-handed, which means the left side of the brain is the dominant hemisphere, and that's usually where language is. If you look at people in which that process is reversed, do you also see the sign language and so on being shifted across as well? Is there always this association between the language bits of the brain and the interpretation of, of things like sign language? Well, that's a good question, actually, and it's something we have just put in an application to get money to look at. <laughs> so actually looking at sign language processing in deaf people in this way, um, there's maybe 20 studies that have been published in this area. And so all have focused on people who are right-handed. So we want to be, you know, have consistency across the people that we're looking at. So in fact, there are no studies looking at deaf people who are left-handed and looking at at the regions that they use and processing language. But that is something that we, we plan to do in the future. Brilliant. Well, good luck with it, Mairead. And do join us when you do discover how it is that the brain manages to parcel out these different bits of information and know that they're all about communication and therefore to put them into the right brain area. We will do.
Thank you. Great to have you on the programme. That's Mairead McSweeney, who is from UCL, University College London, explaining how a deaf person's brain can process sign language in a very similar way to how a hearing person's brain processes normal spoken language. Diana. Now, have you ever listened to a piece of music or speech and not heard the same thing as the other people around you? Or others around you have understood a sound when all you've heard is noise? It's definitely happened to me. And have you ever noticed that when you first walk into a busy pub or bar, you struggle to hear the person you're with, yet after a few minutes, you can hear that person clearly? Well, these changes and differences in our hearing all fit into the field of auditory illusions. And this week, Mira Senthingham met up with Dr Bob Carlion from the Medical Research Council's Cognition and Brain Sciences Union unit to find out how our hearing can create illusions. Well, I think a sort of simple way of uh, thinking about how we process sound is that the brain's a bit like a tape recorder. So we start off hearing uh, a sound from the beginning, go through to the end, and we pretty much get a veridical representation of what's going on. But a lot of the time, uh, the sound coming to us is ambiguous because the sound is often obscured by other sounds or affected by context, that sometimes we can hear uh, two sounds which are physically identically the same but perceive them as, uh, as being quite different from each other. So these are things then that we hear in our everyday life lives really then yeah. that counters these illusions that's right and sometimes we find that uh, simply knowing what we're listening to can actually affect whether we hear something accurately or indeed uh, at all we can sometimes find that the percept of a sound will change over time and sometimes we find that bits of a sound are missing because uh, there are other people talking or people clattering in the background or a plumber banging on a radiator and we find that the brain is capable of filling in this missing information We're going to look at a couple of examples of these illusions now and the first one we're kicking off with is one that I actually helped you make earlier in the week. That's right, yeah. So um, Mira sent me a recording of her saying a a very important question, which I think faces us all today. And what we've done is we've processed this in a way which uh, severely distorts it. So we'd just like to play this to you and see if you can figure out what Mira is saying. So this is actually speech which has been processed in a way which simulates the information available to a deaf patient with a cochlear implant. But of course, in everyday life, we hear lots of other types of distortions. For example, if you're trying to listen to a platform announcement at a railway station in the United Kingdom, you'll be aware that there's often huge amounts of reverberation and distortion, which makes sounds really hard to listen to. And quite often, even if you get two or three or four chances to hear it, you don't really do any better at um, picking up what's being said. So if we um, now play you the sound which has not been distorted in Mira's original form. Are the naked scientists really naked? Okay, and then, so having listened to the real version, can we listen to the distorted one again? Absolutely. And I bet most of our listeners now um, must be actually understanding what I said in the first place. And I just need to answer that, no, the naked scientists aren't naked. But I thought that was a good way to get the question answered out there. So distorted speech, what does this really tell you about the way we hear things? The distorted signal which was reaching your ears, um, because the, the information was greatly degraded, could in fact correspond to one of a number of different utterances. And so it's quite hard for the brain to map it onto all of these individual uh, utterances and to try and decide which is the correct one. But once you've got the right information, you're just doing a simple one-to-one mapping. This kind of thing, it could not even matter how many times you hear it. It's really just a knowledge of what it says beforehand that can really help you to understand it. That's right, yeah. I think what's quite interesting is that when you do that, it's not that you hear the sound and then tens of seconds later you figure out what it must have been. The percept really does just pop out at you as something like a a, a true percept, and it's then quite hard to imagine how you ever fail to understand what was being said in the first place. And why do you think our hearing works like this? 
Well, it's simply because the um, uh, information with which we're presented with is often uh, highly ambiguous and distorted. And in real life, we know that we, uh, our brains, of course, do have lots of information, whether it's about the nature of the language we're speaking to or about uh, the familiarity we have with the person's voice or what words are likely simply to follow one from the other. And so it would obviously make sense for the brain to use the information which it has. What's quite interesting, as I say, is that it doesn't feel like your brain's really using that information when you're listening to these sounds and to lots of other illusions we have. The sounds seem perfectly natural and convincing, which is, of course, the way it should be. You wouldn't really want uh, every time that your input was a bit distorted to think, oh, wasn't that clever how I managed to do that? You want it to be natural and straightforward. Now, an, an, another illusion you, you have is more about kind of our attention and how much attention we're paying to what we're hearing. That's right, yes. Yeah. So there's um, an interesting sequence of sounds which is often used to study how we perceive uh, melodies in music or how we organise things sequentially, like, for example, tracking one person's voice in the presence of another. And the sequence is actually quite simple. It's just a repeating sequence of tones in a, of frequencies A and B, and they go in this sort of little galloping rhythm or repeating rhythm, A, B, A, A, B, A. But what we find is that for most people, if you listen to that sequence repeating over and over again for a few seconds, you lose the galloping percept and it sort of splits into two streams, each of which sounds a little bit like Morse code. Yes, you really can notice the two tones, and it kind of just sounds like an engaged tone over the phone or something. That's right, yes, and it's used in a slightly more interesting concept by composers of polyphonic music who want to have one instrument playing two melodies. So provided you alternate uh, sort of sequences of notes which are quite far apart in frequency fast enough, then you can play two melodies with a, a single instrument. So I guess in situations like that, though, which one's the illusion or which one's correct? Or are they both just correct and it just depends how much attention you're paying to what you're listening to? Well, it certainly depends on how much attention you're paying because what we've shown is that if you divert somebody's attention for the first part of a a longish sequence, either by playing another sound or giving them something to look at or uh, even asking them to count backwards in threes, that what we find is that when they start paying attention to the sounds again, it's like they've just started. In other words, they would hear the galloping rhythm even though the sequence has been on for some uh, length of time. Okay, so Bob, you've used all of these kind of samples of different illusions and experimented with quite a number of people. Mm -hmm. So what can you actually take away from this now and what have you learnt about human hearing? Well, I think there's a few points. I think one of them is that the brain can use its top-down knowledge about the world and about what we're saying to affect what we hear and to deal with missing information, such as when sounds are momentarily masked. We can use the way we attend to sounds to affect the way in which we hear them. And we can even use sounds which are later on in a sequence to affect the way in which we perceive sounds uh, occurring earlier on. In uh, many automatic speech recognition algorithms, such as you might hear when you're on the phone to your bank, these systems don't use that information, and we we know that they're notoriously susceptible to interfering noise or different accents. So despite all those technological advantages, we're much better than even the best computer programs. Glad to hear that it will be many years yet before the machines take over. That was Dr Bob at Carlisle, and if you heard me say otherwise before the uh, interview, then it was an auditory illusion. And he's from the MRC's Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit, explaining to Mira St Thillingham why the sounds we hear can differ and appear to be illusions. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Diana O'Carroll. We're talking about the science of sound and hearing this week and how we experience it. If you'd like to contact us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientist, and you can also send us an email, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Diana. 
And now it's time for our kitchen science. We've already heard how the brain can create audio illusions, but Ben and Dave have been fooling their ears in another way by swapping them around. For the very first kitchen science of 2010, Dave has got me looking like an absolute pillock. Dave, what is this headgear? What I've got here is two short lengths of hosepipe, one going from your right ear to above your left ear, and one going from your left ear to above your right ear, and then a couple of funnels sticking in the ends of each of those two pieces of hosepipe. Well, this sort of reminds me of one of those ear trumpets that you see in usually in cartoons. It's usually really old people who need them to hear things. Yeah, it's basically two ear trumpets swapping your two ears over. OK, well, at the moment they're just resting on my shoulders, but by the sounds of it, you want me to put these in my ears. Yeah, don't stuff them right the way in, but just hold the ends of the tubes over each ear. And then I want you to shut your eyes, and then we're going to try and, I want you to try and work out where I'm standing. OK, so I'll just pop these in my ears. Now, straight away, I can hear sort of what sounds like the sea, or the noise that people think is the sea when they listen to a shell. What's going on there? This is because a tube or a closed container like a shell will amplify certain frequencies coming out of your ear or coming out of the room more than others. And those are what you hear in a shell and what you're hearing in the, that tube. So it's actually the background noise from the room, but just selectively amplified, and that means that I can hear what, what sounds like the sea. That's right. Now I want you to shut your eyes, and I'm going to walk around the room, and I'm going to talk, and you try and work out where I am. OK, so I have my eyes shut. Now, just to give you an idea of what Ben's hearing, we've got a couple of small microphones, and we're going to put them in the place of Ben's ears in the tubes. Where do I sound like I am, Ben? You sound like you're standing on my right. That's entirely wrong. I'm actually standing on your left-hand side. I'll go over the other side. And now? And now it sounds like you've moved over towards the left. And now? A little bit further towards the left, I think. Can I open my eyes yet? OK, now you can open your eyes. So, clearly, the way that this setup works, it, it was confusing my ears. I thought the sound was coming from one way when it actually came from another. But... What's that useful for, other than making me sound a bit stupid? It helps explain one of the ways your brain uses to identify where a sound is coming from. When I'm talking to you, the sound is travelling out from my mouth at about 330 metres per second. Therefore, if I'm on your right-hand side, then it's going to reach your right ear slightly before your left ear, and your brain is quick enough to detect that difference in time, and therefore I'm probably on your right-hand side. So it shows a good way that our ears communicate with our brain. But once you told me that I was wrong, I found that really confusing. Was my brain trying to adapt, trying to make sense of it? Your brain tends to tune a lot of your senses by using visual feedback. So it tends to tune where the end of your finger is by looking at it and knowing where it is. And therefore, you can actually entirely confuse your brain by giving it a different image of where your hand is and things like that. And so your brain is probably attempting to tune the direction sounds are coming from. If it knows, if you can see someone talking over to the right, then it guesses that they're probably the person making the noise. Therefore, it generally tries to tune its direction-sensing sense. And therefore, your direction-sensing sense is getting all sorts of contradictory feedback and getting completely confused. OK, well, I can see how... You can confuse your brain like this. But this is a very, very simple setup. It's literally two bits of hosepipe and some funnels. Is it really good enough? How does it work? Well, the funnels are quite good at collecting a lot of sound and running it down a fairly small pipe. And the two pipes are exactly the same length. So if the 
So if the sound gets to the left funnel first, it's going to get to your right ear first. And if it gets to the right funnel first, it's going to get to your left ear first. So it's a bit like swapping your two ears over, so it swaps which direction you think things are coming in from. But it can't be exactly like swapping my two ears over, because, well, for a start, the distance between the funnels is wider than my own head. And then, of course, it's got to be funneled down some plastic, which surely must mean that the sound takes a little bit longer to get to me. Yes, the sound will take longer to get to your ears, but your brain doesn't really care when the sound started for the direction. It's just a difference between your two ears. And the two funnels are actually further apart from one another than your normal ears, so you probably get like a super directional ability. In fact, in the 1930s, various militaries, particularly the Japanese, who didn't have radar, wanted ways of detecting where aeroplanes were. And they had like huge ear trumpets quite a long way apart. And they'd have someone sitting at the end of these ear trumpets listening for planes. And then just using their sense of direction, um, they would attempt to point the, these ear trumpets directly at the planes so they'd know where they are and be able to direct fighters at them. So because they're a bit further apart, the time difference between reaching one ear and the next one, regardless of whether it's the right ear or the wrong ear, is actually what the brain uses to work out where things are. And this means that even though I looked stupid and had things the wrong way round, my sense of directional hearing was actually much better. Or certainly more definite. You might not have quite the directions right because you'd be a bit confused, but definitely a lot more definite. Fantastic. So you may look a pillock, but if you want to try this out, you can swap around your own ears using some bits of tube and a couple of funnels. And we'll be back with more experiments next week. Ben was talking rubbish. He looked lovely. So using a pair of homemade ear trumpets and crossing them over above your head, you can effectively swap your ears around and mess with your sense of direction. We'll put stereo clips online of this so you can get a real idea of how it sounds at thenakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. And Dave will be live in the studio next week with another experiment. If you want to join in, all you need is a glass of fizzy drink and a handful of raisins. Now I've got a question here for Maraid and it's from Gerardo Garzon from on Facebook, and he says, um, I've got a question about deaf people. How do they think? I mean, how do they make their ideas in their minds? For example, his, le- his native language is Spanish, so most of his thoughts are made in that language. What's your answer? Yeah, so just as he thinks in Spanish and I think in English, so if you're a native user, user of British Sign Language, you would think in British Sign Language. So then the question really is, well, what's the nature of that thought? What's it like? And so it can be visual or it could be manual, so motoric. And so we can use different methods in the lab to try and to try and get at that question um, by using different interference techniques. And so it seems to be a bit of both, to be the answer. Um, so in, in, there seems to be more weight towards a, a, motor, a motor representation that people use in their minds when they're thinking in sign language. So they would literally see themselves doing the thing rather than think it through talking to themselves, doing it like I might, for example? Well... Not necessarily. No, that would be a visual. But yeah, that would be visual. Or there's more weight towards the, the motoric representation. Would be more like feeling themselves do it, just like you feel, you hear yourself speak, if you like. So you get, you have a motor representation of the movement. Would be the the, the type of representation that they might be be bringing up when thinking. Chris, it's just like imagining eating chocolate in my head. I can sort of feel the sensations. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Yeah, Fascinating. Exactly. Thank you, Maraid. Okay. I've got a couple of questions now for um, Karen. Adam Tremel says, what are the advantages of having, say, a cochlear implant versus a hearing aid? Generally, cochlear implants are usually used for people who have very severe or profound hearing impairment, where a hearing aid isn't really very much use to you because you don't have enough 
hearing left to amplify by the hearing aid, whereas hearing aids are used for a different group of people, a, a much larger population of people who have milder or moderate hearing impairment, where amplifying what they can hear is of benefit to them. And basically that's what a hearing aid does. It amplifies the sound. Because the cochlear implant, invented in Australia a little while back, wasn't it, is a series of electrodes that directly stimulates the nerves that connect the cochlea to the brain, whereas the hearing aid is relying on putting vibrations that are a bit bigger in to make the hair cells vibrate a bit more. That, that, that's right. The hearing aid doesn't do anything biologically to your inner ear and your sensory hair cells are still there, are doing the best they can. Um, but the cochlear implant is actually placed inside your ear, so it uh, involves surgery and it's, it's uh, uh, quite likely to damage the um, natural hearing ability that you might have because it directly stimulates the nerve endings, as you said. I've got a question from Peter in Godmanchester who says, why is tinnitus often related to age-related conditions and how could a, a low level of background noise actually trigger it? Well, t- tinnitus is a ringing or noises in your in, that you can perceive. Uh, sometimes it sounds like it's really coming from outside. Sometimes it sounds if it's coming from inside your head, and um, it's a sign that the that either the sensory hair cells or something in your neurons is, is um, activating at abnormal times when there isn't an input, there isn't a sensory input. And so that can happen because there's something going wrong with the neuron or something going wrong with the hair cell, and that can be an early sign of damage. And so if you come away from a loud rock concert and you find your your ears are ringing, that means you've got the first signs of damage and you really shouldn't do it. Um, So um, why it's brought on by uh, low levels of background noise, um, I, I don't think anybody really has an answer to that. And every person's tinnitus is very different. So there's no general answer to that. Thank you very much, Karen Steele. Um, got a quick question from Seema, who says, why do the sounds of nails on a chalkboard bother us so much? The only and the best explanation I've heard of this is that the frequency distribution that's emitted by the nails going down the chalkboard is very reminiscent of very high frequencies of distress sounds produced by other animals. And this plugs into the primeval response in all of us of an animal in distress. And for this reason, we experience this as, ouch, I don't like it. I have to wake up and take, take notice. Right. Question of the week time, Diana. Hooray. Well, this week we deal with the problems that weren't quite solved at Copenhagen. My name is Jenny Boyd. I live in Edmond, West Virginia, United States. My question is, how is carbon output, carbon emissions measured for various countries and how accurate are those measurements? So how can you measure enormous quantities of something that simply floats away? I'm Greg Marland. I'm at the Environmental Sciences Division, Oak Ridge National Laboratory in the U.S. Actually, I think there's a misconception that CO2 emissions are measured. What you try to do is to measure how much fuel is burned, and if you know how much carbon is in the fuel, you can calculate how much CO2 must be produced. And very seldom is that, in fact, measured, although there are some large power plants in which they actually put measurement devices in the smokestack and can measure the amount of CO2 that comes out. That is unusual. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has published a five-volume set of guidelines that all the countries now use as part of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change for estimating emissions of all greenhouse gases, and it does produce uniformity across countries. The error margin depends on the country and on the greenhouse gas. I think the interest is in partly on carbon dioxide emitted from energy systems, and in that case it really depends on how much 
a country invests in collecting energy statistics. For countries like those in the EU or the U.S. or Japan, my guess is that the error margin is something on the order of plus or minus 5%. For those discharging smaller quantities of CO2, the error bars, I think, I think can be as high as 20 25%. And there are some very large countries. In China, we've actually published the estimate that the error may be as large as 15 or 20%. And Greg also said that a major problem countries face in adding up their CO2 emissions is where to charge them if the fuel is bought in one country but burned in another. So if you board a plane in the UK bound for the USA and the fuel has been bought in the UK but it's expended over the Atlantic, whom do you charge the CO2 to? At the moment, the international convention is to charge the CO2 to no one and they estimate about 3.1% of global emissions don't appear in international accounts. And that's on the order of a billion tonnes of CO2. But on to another problem that's difficult to measure with next week's question. My name is Luke McNeil and my question is, it's often said that people resemble their pets or vice versa. Is this a phenomenon that has been studied do people choose pets that resemble them, or is this a matter of us noticing when people do resemble their pets and forgetting when we see people who do not resemble their pets? Do we look like our pets? I've been thinking of getting a ginger dog. Maybe it's so that we're teased equally. Answers to Chris at thenakedscientist.com or on the forum, thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. What about your crocodile? You've already got no, just joking. <laughs> hey. Thank you very much, Diana O'Carroll, with this week's question of the week. Well, that's almost it. We've run out of time. Thank you to our guests, Karen Steele, and also to Mairead McSweeney and our wonderful production team, Ben Vowsler, Mira Senthalingham, Diana O'Carroll, who's here with us tonight, and Tom Simpkins. Next week, it's our question and answer show. Your questions, send them in, chris at thenakedscientist.com, and we will do our utmost to try and answer them for you. Until then, have a great week. See you soon, and goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.